Hey, I'm Kent Gustafson, and this is Mark Fideli. Hey, Punch Up crowd. Welcome. Glad to be here. Hey, did we announce the show? Did we tell people we have a show? I think this is what we're doing now. Let's get meta. I think we're doing it. This is the Punch Up podcast where we talk to people who have stuff to say. Some of them are on the inside of the Beltway. Some of them, like you, come from outside the Beltway. And together, we try to make a magic mush of whatever wonky stuff people are talking about. A magic mush. That sounds dangerous. But what I'm excited about is we talk to people about pop culture. We talk about politics. We talk about where the world is going. And this episode, we're pretty excited, is our first. And we're devoting it to an interview with a pretty interesting guy. Tom Barnett comes from sort of the public policy and especially the national security policy world. So he wrote a book called The Pentagon's New Map as the world changed from George W. Bush to Obama. And inside of that was a thread of what's now called great power competition. What does that mean? It means the pivot to Indo-PACOM. What does that mean? We're looking to Asia. What is that? Yeah, that's what we're dealing with. We're going to peel away the layers USA and China are, it seems, on a collision course. And most people in this inside world look to 2025, 2027-ish, where possibly related to Taiwan, there's a confrontation, inevitable, in the South China Sea and around the whole world. We know that inside the Beltway, there's an apocalyptic feel And then you listen to Tom and you're like, wait, 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 there's an alternative. So we're excited to look back at what he's done, but especially look ahead and maybe take away some reason for hope and a way cooler heads can prevail, which, of course, looking at the 2024 election cycle, the idea that cooler heads will prevail might be a tall order. But that's what we're here for. We're here to punch up into the conversation, into the noise. And boy, Tom is a great first guest to have to do that. I love also that Tom, I mean, speaking of punching, this part of, part of the show is we go some weird places. And uh, in this, uh, we talk about, I think we talked about Dad Bod as he was talking about the... Uh, we did. <laughs> yeah, the shape of the world order. Yeah. And there's a, there's a nice blending here, which is what we're aiming for, for, you know, this is Mark's world of how do you blend flow from the basketball court, from music, from mm. the real world into policy. And that's, that's where I come in. I'm super interested. I come out of the music space. I come out of that creative world and we're just having a good time. So this interview with Thomas Barnett, I'm pretty psyched about it. Tell us what you think. And I, I don't know, strap in. Is that a good thing to say? Yeah, in. It's good. Let's go. All right. Here we go. Mark, I feel like you should introduce me to Tom. You guys have this relationship. You you hang out together. You've got, I don't know, do you have a dogs and cats together? Baseball card habit? Yeah, I'll say this. Tom Barnett, welcome. Kent, thank you. No, Tom and I don't have any dogs that run together unless you think of um, DOD strategists that we both know Wait, and DOD? are influenced by and run in the same circles. Dodd? You said, I thought we were talking about dogs. Department of Defense. Ah, Thank oh, you. God. Perhaps the running dogs of capitalism. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. I love that. No, Tom and I have uh, not crossed paths directly, but we've been in intersecting communities. And, and I'll say I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. So I read the Pentagon's new map. I remember where I was when I read it. And 
underlined a ton and then set it aside and came back two or three more times and couldn't believe how many George W. Bush era assumptions that I had were assaulted by you, Tom. And I was a little upset. So I'm confessing now I harbored a little bit of a grudge. I was a really big fan of W. I met him personally. I had a lot of friends who were in the administration. Mm -hmm. And then um, Obama came along and pivoted to the East. And now here we are, right? Is that why you're wearing a W uh, cap today here, Mark? And since people can't see you, I'll just say he's wearing a baseball hat that says W on it. That would be the Washington Nationals um, 2019 World Series champion. I, I thought it was a George W. Bush hat. I'm not that much of a fanboy. And the world's changed. So, Tom, I'm curious, even before Mark does his fancy announcement about who you are and everything, I'm, I'm already interested. Did you personally change Mark Fideli? Is that your contribution to society? Uh, <laughs> that's so funny that he remembers where he was when he uh, read the book. Cause I remember where I was when I wrote it, I was uh, above my garage in Rhode Island, nice. a wonderful little space. And I was writing uh, boy about four to five to six to seven in the morning and then going off for my work day. The Pentagon's new map had a, a lot of impact. I mean, I, I saw it replicated in, in security documents, national security planning documents, not just across the U.S. military establishment, but across a bunch of allied ones. And uh, it really took me around the world and was a tremendous uh, treat in that regard. Got to meet a lot of people and go into a lot of situations and, and varying rooms and have a lot of access I wouldn't have had without it. Was it worth the lost sleep? Well, it's not the sleep so much as it's the, uh, it's the constant travel. Hmm. Hmm. And I got sick a lot. You know, all that plane travel is hard on your body. And if you, if you were yeah. to describe that book for a total rookie to the, to the DOD space, the running dogs of capitalism space, how would you describe that book and what drove it? Just, just as a nutshell. It was an attempt to define for the outside world and throughout the DOD, the Department of Defense, sort of a, a common strategic picture, if you will, of the world following 9-11, because we had a very different map in mind right up to the day 9-11 happened. And once it did happen, people needed a vocabulary and a kind of a strategic perspective to address what we were trying to do. And the argument was pretty simple. I just mapped everywhere that we sent U.S. military forces in crisis response for the previous uh, 20, 30 years. Totally simple. Did you just say simple? Yeah. Sure. I mean, it, well, it was quite an effort uh, data-wide. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when you added up all the places we had sent forces since the end of the Cold War, you, in effect, got the global demand pattern for U.S. military power. And that demand pattern was very equatorially centric. So it wasn't, you know, our big plans for a war with China or Russia or something like that across the north. It was all this uh, going into the south and dealing with all this instability. And what I noticed when I drew a, a line around about 99 percent of those uh, situations, uh, scenarios on the map, engagements, I was looking at the uh, economies that were least connected to globalization. And so the argument became what you're looking at is almost in, in, in the old Marxian sense, you know, Marx had this idea that capitalism was just going to sweep the planet. It was just going to wipe out everything in its way, sort of like the Genesis bomb in that old Star Trek movie. It was going to reformat the planet. And he was right. He was just off by about 100 years. 
and what happened when China did join the marketization route. And we started for the first time, not just talking about the West, but start talking about a global economy and globalization. That really did trigger this kind of rapid uh, marketization expanse around the world. And so my gap was sort of like the layout of those countries that were experiencing that invasion at high velocity. Okay, sort of like the North coming down to the South at high velocity. And, you know, globalization tended to empower people who were previously dispossessed in many ways. You know, automatically empowers women relative to men. If everybody gets a smartphone, then things are evened out on a level that's really quite shocking for a traditional society. And so you get responses to that. You know, they don't want to move their cultural clock uh, forward. Uh, they don't want to adjust to all this content and all this connectivity coming at them rapidly. And you get instabilities, you get reactions, you get people who want to stay stuck in time, fundamentalists, or go back in time, serious fundamentalists. And you got people who are willing to fight and kill and die under the most obscene circumstances in order to prevent what they perceive as their culture being overrun. So there is a kind of a, a genocidal feel to globalization when you're on the receiving end. If you don't, you know, if you value your current identity over the opportunities afforded, the problem is, is that most people value the opportunities more. And the opportunity to escape from, uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of abject poverty is pretty damn attractive. And that's why globalization has, has moved around the world. But my argument became simply that, you know, globalization, while ultimately pacifying, when it first hits, is entirely destabilizing. And so the Pentagon's new map was basically following where globalization was penetrating at the time. And the Middle East back then was being hit rather hard. And I can look back at it now and see, quite frankly, a much more stable Middle East that has absorbed that wave of globalization. And did we speed it up with our fight there in Iraq, tangentially in, in Afghanistan? I would argue that we did in the sense that we forced a lot of regional powers to step up and start taking ownership for the region in a way that we haven't seen before in history. And now, if you look around, it's kind of interesting. You don't hear that much about the Middle East. And to the extent you do hear things about the Middle East, tends to be more about climate, tends to be more about demographics, tends to be more about immigration. So when you pull forward 20 years to this book, I'm really looking at a different ordering principle. If, if it was globalization's rapidly expanding connectivity that was driving all the conflict and tumult back 20 years ago, now that tumult, one could argue, is, is largely done Globalization has kind of penetrated just about everywhere. And what we're now looking at is the fruit of that success in the rise of an emergent global middle class, which I argue in the new book, America's New Map, really has us rerunning the experiment of the rise of the middle class that appeared in the West back at the turn of the 20th century. Now the turn of the 21st century, let's say, we got this global variant coming out. And you know, whenever the middle class sort of emerges, there are elements from the left and the right that want to control that. And we saw that rise in Europe, fascism, communism, way back when. And by God, if we aren't using the same name-calling techniques today, even on ourselves when it's inappropriate. But you do face those kinds of strongman national, nationalistic threats from the right and kind of single-party autocracies from the left. And there is this big question of who's going to rule the global middle Ideally, 
because uh, we're talking about a population that's grown from 2 billion, say in 2000, to 4 billion today, to more like 6 billion mid-century. Ideally, you want that middle class to rule itself. That's sort of our model. But, you know, that doesn't just happen on its own. We had some good luck and good fortune, especially in terms of the leadership we got in that time frame. We went through a massive progressive era that tamed our kind of very rough-edged capitalism and made it a lot more equitable and fair. And one could argue we're due for one of those regradings right now because people are feeling fairly pissed off about a lot of different aspects of capitalism. But, you know, this notion of that middle class being out there and that being a big structural change, to me, if that was the only thing going on in the world today, that would be stupendous. Because, I mean, I grew up in a world where I was told, you're never going to have a global middle class. It's never going to appear. It's going to be have, have nots. So the fact that we've achieved this with U.S.-style globalization, I argue in the book, greatest achievement any nation's ever given the world. Okay, but price tag ensues. And that price tag is called climate change, how we reformatted the planet with all this consumption and production and everything else. That's how powerful our model of globalization has been. It's literally created a new geological age. And two, to really join globalization and get integrated in its production chains, you go through the demographic transition, which on the far side makes you old. So there's the demographic collapse we're talking about in the subtitle, already happening across the North, freaking a lot of us out, okay? Especially in the United States, freaking out the white population because that's where the population's absolutely declining. And thank God we have immigrants. Otherwise, we'd start looking like Japan or Italy pretty damn fast. So that's the transition from the two books. I'm really still talking about the same part of the world in many instances. I highlight in the new book, the so-called Middle Earth band stretching 30 degrees north and south of the equator. That's where the climate change is going to hit most. That's the part of the world that's most fertile relative to the demographically collapsing north. So tension built in there, you know, not just in terms of immigration, but climate migration that will happen as a result of climate changes unfolding. And then you got this global middle class largely situated in that global south which is looking for security and certainty. They don't want to go back to absolute poverty. And they're going to side with whichever superpower delivers their acceptable definitions of freedom and certainty and security. And right now, I would say the Chinese are doing a pretty damn good job of making that source issue indifferent to much of the world. They're basically saying our version of freedom, security, development, certainty is as good or better than the liberal West. And that's the kind of nature of the the competition I really see going on here. Not Taiwan, not Ukraine, even though those are vestiges of the Cold War that we're still dealing with. I want to, that was was a beautiful answer. I, I, it was like a, it was like a, a, an incredible routine from a a gymnast or something. And you watch and you think, where, where's it going to end? Where's the, the beautiful dismount? And I loved that because it, it elided from the one book into the other, which you don't often see. I also love that you use the term Middle Earth because my brain is going <laughs> Tolkien, Tolkien, you know, like Lord of the Rings. And I love, but I love the concept of the middle 
because you're you're almost in the region of spirituality, almost in the region of there's this side, there's that side, but then there's this stable middle. So I'm going to toss to Mark. I'm going to give Mark <laughs> a challenge for his personality and say, Mark, can you dumb down what he just said for those people who just don't understand what the heck you're talking about? Well, I think a lot do that are younger. Yeah. Ironically, I think the middle is... Let's start with the West. You said the settlers that came, what is it, the early 18th century, actually the late 18th, early 19th, out West, the gold rush. The Gen Z Homelander generation is part of the global middle class. They are being sold, either by China or the U.S. or other, a vision of what that settled state is going to look like. Like on TikTok? Right. And we're not committed to the American. Yeah, TikTok, right. My kids, they're not committed to an American path as the baby boomers have right. defined it, as the books define it. Why should they be based on our Why should they be? for the last exactly. 20 years? I mean, there's not a whole exactly. lot to feel great about. Yeah. Well, so let's take it back full circle. 9-11, I remember where I was. I watched the unfolding of smoke like like a plume from the Pentagon five miles from where I was standing. My wife heard the explosion in the side of the Pentagon. We lived through the overhead flight of F-16s, fighters, the smell. Drove by back from my parents, my in-laws' house to home, saw the collapse of the Pentagon. I have friends that worked the body recovery. I have friends who were in the building who have had PTSD since then. We've known people that passed 9-11 was a reordering principle. And at the moment, George W. Bush drew lines in the sand, axis of evil, but then at the same time gave a sense of security and confidence. In my mind, that's the last time I felt that the whole country was united behind a kind of global vision. But it was a reactive one. It was a fear threat reaction. But yeah, it, it, was. Was, it was amazingly unifying for the time period. That's right. Those of us in the national security community back then had no illusion that that was going to last. But well, I certainly it, it wanted it good right? for the moment, uh, despite yeah. the tragic nature of the uh, instigation. But these kids, your kids, don't even—they weren't around. They've never experienced that, yeah. right? They can get from someone a vision that gives them that rallying cry, that sense of identity with something. I felt this identity and still do as an American. That's my fundamental identity. My kids don't feel that way exactly. Somebody's going to sell them something that gives them that sense of coherence in the world around them. And it's not going to be national borders. It's going to be global middle class or something like it. And I think what Tom's book has done is put his finger on an, an actual future state where young people can choose who they identify with right. and how they do that. And that's this demographic shift. They're going to be on the front end of something, whereas these cultural warriors are on the back end of something, and it's apocalyptic to them. But for the kids, back to the West, it's like settling in the new prairies. So what are the prairies? Who's going to sell that, China or the U.S.? Right. The digital prairies. That's, the, that's, that's my circle back. Yeah. What do you mean by digital prairies? A frontier, a frontier in an in a information connected and driven world uh, yeah. to include well, things like the metaverse. And it's just this sense that, you know, when I was a kid, there weren't a whole lot of identities to choose from. 
You know, you didn't recognize the gay community whatsoever. There were almost zero minority people in my world. So the only two identities I had were, were Catholic and American. Uh, and nowadays, the choices younger generations have and are very comfortable with, I mean, incredibly comfortable with, despite us older people's uh, lack of comfort with it, they can choose all sorts of identities. And, and nationalism, citizenship is just one. And, you know, we've encouraged them, and I think it's great in many ways, through uh, video games and that whole culture. You know, if something doesn't work, move on. You know, just keep trying. It doesn't matter if you take 35 times to get to the next level. They just have this, uh, you know, bulldog tenacity to problems, which I, which I admire greatly. I love that whole mindset uh, and that lack of fear of failure. But that makes them more willing and open to experimentation with their identity as all these opportunities emerge. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're natives to this world. They're digital natives. They're globalization natives. They're America post-white uh, dominance natives. I mean, all that sounds all that sounds interesting. But that you got wonkish again after saying bulldog tenacity. That was that was really interesting. This this that young generation has this. What do you mean by that? This like they they hold on to stuff. They're not going to let go. What is that? The, the tenacity. They have in their minds a clear sense of future problems, and they're increasingly interested at, at personal sacrifice and cost to go forward and attack those problems. And the biggest one for them is obviously climate change. So Greta Thunberg, you know, the Montana kids suing over uh, the Constitution's promise there in that state for like a good environment. This is them really pushing the envelope and making declarations that they consider this incredibly important. I thought it was really illustrative at that uh, Republican debate a bit back uh, that they had the one question from a millennial and the guy basically said, hey, climate change is big, big deal to my generation. And the only response they got out of him besides people looking at their feet on stage was uh, Ramaswamy saying it's all a hoax, you know, and that just doesn't yeah. resonate with these guys because they're looking at a world that's changing radically around them and they're being told, you know, Ukraine, Russia, Taiwan, China, this is what we're going to fight and die over. And that doesn't connect to them any more than it connects to the global South, which is just not interested in this problem set. They really look at things like climate change as being the big structural driver going forward. And frankly, that's why I wrote the book. You know, there is no grand strategy out there trying to address climate change. It's considered a policy issue, just stuff we tweak on the margins in terms of CO2 emissions. When we're looking at, as scientists are, are putting out there, the possibility of about a, a billion deaths related to climate change over the next century, possibility of a good billion people being put on the move from lower latitudes to northern latitudes, we're talking huge structural changes. Uh -huh. you know, and if you're 75 and you're a boomer, you're still fighting Roe v. Wade and Dobbs and this kind of stuff and Supreme Court supremacy. You're not going to live for this world. And you hear it from them. But if you're 20 years old, you're stuck with this world. And you're getting pretty agitated about the lack of response on top. Uh, and I don't blame you. I mean, I, if I was... And don't the kids blame... They do. You us the the country the the establishment pretty directly pretty great boomers and gen x's 
who, you know, for now seem intent at just replicating and extending the culture wars, which are the biggest waste of time I've ever imagined for a superpower, given mm-hmm. the stuff going on in the world. And, you know, Ramaswamy is right. There is a lack of purpose. But, you know, doubling down on culture wars is not going to get anybody any purpose. Dealing with something like climate change, there's purpose. And there's economic purpose as well. I mean, people are worried about what's going to be the big growth engine in the global economy now that the Chinese have plateaued to a certain extent. That is a very, very big question. And some of this celebrating about China's perceived plateauing or or the beginning of its decline is really not intelligent on our part because to the extent they go down, we're going down with them. So if you look at it like that, the energy uh, transformation revolution towards green, that's likely to be the biggest source of economic growth going forward. So it's not wokeism. It's it's about dealing with reality and uh, trying to be economically successful as you do. Question. You said strategic vocabulary. Let's add this word generational strategic vocabulary. Generally, people who have strategic responsibilities, money, spending on advertising and messaging, hiring the right people, doing deals, buying companies, deciding on the IT infrastructure and the cloud, like all these big corporate infrastructure things, banking, moving towards Bitcoin. There's big decisions that are strategic generationally for people who want ROI now, this quarter, while I'm in my role, so I can take credit. The generational strategic vocabulary about climate, a billion people dying over the next century, huge gap. The quarterly ROI community, the global dogs or running dogs of capitalism versus people who actually understand climate, who speak the language in the weeds, that gap is probably the biggest challenge that the culture war presents is it pushes them further and further away. They're not talking the same language. How do we fix that? Or denies their attempts to move in that direction. Okay. ESG, DEI, that is business adapting to reality. Okay. The future of consumption growth in the global economy is overwhelmingly non-white, non-American, non-European. So yeah, You know, my mantra in this book is sort of like the least racist superpower wins. Mm. So let's talk about replacement theory. You've probably heard about the global uh, and domestic, domestic terrorism, violent extremism, RMNV. What about those who are fearful of whiteness, Christianity, disappearing, the kingdom of God, right? literacy, enlightenment, like all the things that you could positively associate with replacement by this non-white world. The millennials and the boomers, excuse me, the Gen Zers are gonna be majority minority when they're older. And the whites are already an absolute minority in Texas. Yeah, so, so it's being replaced, fact. Right. What about the fear that, for example, Trump plays to- Absolutely. In that space, because if we're not racist superpower and we then lead and we get ahead of China, follow those like breadcrumbs from your strategic vocabulary. That means right now, 2024 is an election about are whites being replaced or are we going to be a non-racist global superpower and actually lead the next century, right? Like that's an election level issue, right? Yeah. I mean, I could, I could burn mm-hmm. it down to uh, choose color or choose country. Okay. Wow. 
Now, let's be honest about the term replacement. Mm -hmm. Globalization, world history is a long history of so-called replacement. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Talk to a Native American in this country about replacement mm. and listen yeah. to them boohoo about white spheres today. Talk to any Amerindian across the Western Hemisphere. You know, so replacement is, is, is a real thing, but it's kind of an illogical response to a, a certain degree. And it's somewhat hypocritical. Mm -hmm. In the United States, there's no question that whites came in and replaced at a rate that was stunning for about 150 years. And the whites, you know, this country is about 80% white when it started, and it was 90% about the time I was born. So we hit peak whiteness in the 1950s. <laughs> Can you believe that? Peak whiteness in the 1950s. And, you know, back yep. and look at the, the culture, and it was stunningly white. There was, there was nobody. You can't find a black person in a movie. It has dropped since then, in large part because we opened up the floodgates, let's say, on immigration and said, we're not going to deny people access on the basis of some sort of country racial quota formula system that we had in place going back to the 1920s, where we went through this long four decade period of basically keep America white. Okay, we opened it yeah. up in 1965, and the white population share has dropped dramatically ever since. It's down to about 60% now. Democrats look like America today, about 60% white, about 40% non-white. Republicans look like America about 35, 40 years ago, still yeah. almost 90% white. So that's, that's the big gap. And I will tell you that dropping from 1950 to 2050 where whites go from 90% to less than 50%, we call that the 50-50-50 journey that America's undergoing demographically. Nobody's ever experienced that. Nobody's wow. ever tried it, much less engineered it. I mean, it is an experiment. And I will tell you, almost all the polarization in the system today is based on that underlying reality. We call it transgender. We, we call it cultural this and that. It all has the same roots whites fearing the loss of their privilege, and it is being lost. They are not the center of the universe anymore. And one of my favorite examples is comedians making fun, stand-ups making fun of the fact, hey, how come every couple and family on, in a commercial today is, is mixed race? What's up with that? Let me tell you what's up with that. Fastest growing demographic in the United States. Mm -hmm. And if you're in advertising, that's what you care about. Fastest growing right. demographics. Okay. So let me pull the lens back. Okay, we're going from 90 to 45%, okay? Because we're special in the Western Hemisphere. But let me tell you, what we're heading toward is the norm. Throughout the Western Hemisphere as a whole, whites are about 45% of the population, okay? Now you can look at that as some vast civilizational tragedy in a very who's your daddy approach where we owe everything to Europe. And if we didn't have Europe, who are we? Okay, but let's admit the rest of the Western Hemisphere had a special transatlantic relationship too. different countries, Portugal, Spain. And let's admit that the new world has been mixing races for about 500 years, forcibly through colonialization. Amerindians swamped, merged with incoming populations. Asians brought in as cheap labor. Europeans coming in as colonizers. Africans being brought in as slaves. We've been mixing for four or 500 years, which means this north-south integration that I talk about being forced upon us by climate change, demographic disparities between north and south, 
the purposeful mixing north and south that we're forced to do now because of all these giant environmental structural changes, we're already built for that. Because quite frankly, the Western Hemisphere has been mixing races for half a millennia. So you're, the optimism in that line I find so interesting and so refreshing because I, I, I think so often we live in such a pundit-based negative space about everything. So if we're on, on one side, we're talking about the world is going to die, which, I mean, hey, I hope it doesn't, right? But on, that's on the one side. On the other side, it's, oh, we're all going to be replaced or whatever else, right? It's a completely other, and I'm not giving a false equivalency to either side or any side, but that positive statement of, hey, I think we're capable of this north-south thing. Right. What a simple and profound statement that is. And honestly, I, you know, the great joy of writing this book was bumping into things like that. You know, just starting a paragraph and then just going, hey, wait a minute. And then writing it out and saying, holy cow, that is a, that really is a different way. And so how do you, how do you bump into that? Well, you know, we don't really look at the Western Hemisphere very intelligently. You know, we see it as this obligation. We see it as immigrants. We see it as a drug war. A drug war that we started, quite frankly, with our addictions, and then fuel with all sorts of military aid, and enable with all sorts of gun running from the southwest of America to Latin America. So big surprise, murder capital is based where the drugs are based, and the drugs are all coming to us. You know, and we say, it's your fault. It's your fault that we can't kick our addictions and whatnot. So if you kind of put back and push away immigration and drug war and, and look at the picture, what do you see in the Western Hemisphere relative to, say, Asia and the Euro-African slice, Europe plus Africa? What you see is much more peace in the Western Hemisphere. What you see is the world's biggest military superpower doesn't have to worry about any other superpowers in his neck of the woods. What you see are resource advantages. We are water beyond self-sufficient. We are food beyond self-sufficient. We are now energy self-sufficient. We are under-integrated relative to the rest of the world. EU does about 70% of its trade within its universe. Asia is now up to 50%. We think we're the King Kongs with NAFTA turned into USMCA. We're at 40%. And we haven't integrated Latin America into our universe really at all. Okay, so all sorts of opportunity for nearshoring, reshoring, regional trade integration. We are pre-mixed, as I said. There is less diversity to manage. Four languages, four languages get you 99% of us. We are 80% Christian, 60% Catholic. Compare that to Christian versus Muslim in the center. Compare that to the taste the rainbow reality of East Asia, which is extremely complex. Hell, India alone's got more religions and languages than we do in the Western Hemisphere. Think about if we're going to go north in response, you know, we're going to see migration going north. What do we got in the Western Hemisphere? We got Canada, nicest country in the world, one of the best governments in the world. What do they have in the Eastern Hemisphere? They got the Russians, for God's sakes, who nobody wants. Okay, economic match on demographics. We need younger and we got younger right to our South, and they wanna come. And they keep us in a constant state of a demographic dividend, meaning we have an unusually thick middle age range of workers relative to old people and young people because we augment 
with immigrants. You you love you love thickness around the middle. I, I it, it's been a few times now. We got to like talk about dad bod or like you know middle aged uh, apple shaped people. I have it. <laughs> <laughs> My center of gravity, much like the world, has moved <laughs> southward below the belt. Nice. The equator. Yeah, that's good. Real quick, Tom, I want to jump on something, but I know you're you have a lot of gas in the tank. So regionalization, your book has a bunch of stars on the cover. Regionalization for growth. Talk to me about what it could look like. Let me say it this way. What it could look like if serious politicians and serious journalists weren't playing to the platform social media crowd but actually asking strategic questions from your strategic or a strategic vocabulary, what would regionalization, i.e. partnering, nearshoring, like translating our growth engine into the Southern hemisphere and moving it North, facilitating the leaving of Middle Earth peacefully. There's the Panama Canal. There's so many things that are strategic interests if we need to start with our interests first. How do we grow in a regionalized way and deal with our NATO and Japanese and, and AUKUS-related obligations at the same time? And how can we have a serious conversation about that in the 2024 cycle? Well, serious conversations about anything in the 2024 cycle is hard because... Hey, that's what the punch-up is for. See this? <laughs> that's what we are here for. So trust us to punch up. Let's, okay. say, let's just say you could get on the stage, ask the questions. What would you be asking? Well, let me, let me, let me start with the, the negative answer or the negative argument here. There's nothing about this future of all this tumult imposed upon Middle Earth by climate change, where we're talking half of humanity, the vast bulk of the global middle class as it has emerged, being subject to temperatures and precipitation ranges historically associated with the Saharan Desert which I would note is not very populated for a reason, because it's tougher than hell to live there. So we're going to see Middle Earth turned into a tougher than hell place to live. And our goal should be keep as much of the population there resiliently as possible. That's going to take a lot of foreign direct investment. That's going to take a lot of certainty. Okay. We're not in a mood for that. Chinese are. So the defensive argument becomes, hey, if we don't do it, the Chinese are going to move in and do it. Okay. But let's look around the world negatively and say, can we out integrate China in Asia? My answer is no. There's no way. Are we going to out integrate the EU across Europe, the Med, Middle East, and with Russia? We're not. Are we going to out integrate all the regional powers that have moved into the Middle East in the last 20 years? Because it's basically their oil, not ours. No. Are we going to out integrate those same regional powers in Africa? Do you see us becoming the great integrator of Africa over the next 20, 30 years? It ain't happening. So where's the region where we are the natural dominant integrator? where it makes sense for us, where we're going to be incentivized, where we're already incentivized in terms of migrants heading north, largely in response to climate change, our neck of the woods. Okay. And that's the Monroe Doctrine. That's the Monroe Doctrine re-resurrected. Okay. Yeah. Not blown up, blown out, I should say. Positive. Okay. But if you were, but if you were actually on that stage asking a question, they all would have stared at you like, huh? Yeah. Right. What would you actually ask? The punch up or the breakthrough on this argument is 
we're competing on brand with Europe, Russia, India, and China. Okay. Our brand is the most, the most admired brand in the world. If you had free agency tomorrow on a global scale, guess who gets a lot of new citizens? Guess who gets a lot of new states? Guess who disappears from the planet? Probably Russia. Okay. We and the Europeans would boom if we threw down the borders. Everybody would come to our neck of the woods. That is the soft power in an integrating, regionalizing world. We've seen the Europeans use that power through their state accession model. They tell you basically, hey, change yourself very dramatically, make yourself more like us and we'll let you in. We'll toss some money your way, but you gotta do all the change and then we'll let you in. That is a very powerful model. They've grown dramatically over the last 20 years, integrating Eastern Europe that way. They're so powerful at that model, they freak the Russians out into invading Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That's how afraid they are of that model. No one talks about that predecessor event to Ukraine. It's all about what the cameras can train themselves on. Putin, well, or right? we, like, it's so ridiculous. We blame ourselves. We say we forced it by encouraging them to come to our side, which is a very odd self-loathing argument. We should be fantastically happy that our side is that attractive, that we'll have countries put up with the possibility of a Russian invasion to come interact and integrate yeah. with us. That's the way business. we need to yeah. view the world. Okay. And so my so Putin's so having a temper tantrum. Near term desire is get me the 51st state. I don't care how you do it. So okay. if you had a kid, if you had a, let's say there's a 12 year old kid at a Republican debate and the kid's like, Hey, um, Hey Tom, if you give me 20 bucks, I'll ask a question for you of the Republican candidates, but he's a 12 year old, right? What would you whisper in that kid's ear that he could actually ask those candidates and get some kind of crazy answer? Mm. 20 bucks though. You also got to give him 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. I mean, I think the answer is the real question is the one that that millennial asked at the Republican debate, which is basically what's your vision for America in relation to what climate change is going to do to our planet? I mean, that's about the simplest way to say it. I mean, we're already seeing harbingers of the future. We've watched a mega drought unfold across the Northern Triangle states, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. They've been sending us people on that basis. Ethiopia is in the eighth year of a mega drought. They got civil war back, big surprise. They got people desperately moving up into the Persian Gulf. We saw several hundred of them murdered on the border coming across from Yemen to Saudi Arabia. There's your future. Climate migrants desperately heading northward, being gunned down at the border. And then you look wow. at the Republican uh, debate where they were jumping over each other almost to say, hey, I'll send the most special operators down there to kill the most amount of drug cartel people I can find. Not hard to translate that into, hey, I'm willing to guard my border and kill as many climate migrants that are coming over uh, as required. Okay. That is incredibly intense as a message to all generations, what you just said. And I think that's, that's a really magical way to, um, in some ways, mark the, the final stage of our interview with you. Cause I think let's, let's ask some things now that are, that'll wrap us up in different ways. What I thought was amazing to mark that was that you, you are using that statement, the kid might say, you're using that to say, 
my generation, people older, people younger, people in power, people I know, hey, is somebody listening, right? right. Shake the, shake their shoulders a little. Well, because, you know, that generation, that generation's not going to kill masses at the border to preserve America. It's not going to happen. We're uncomfortable, you know, with a couple of deaths over these water buoy things, as we should be. It's kind of creepy that more people die sort of annually on our southern border than died across 40 years of the Berlin Wall. I mean, that's just not who we want to be. And um, I think you're going to see more and more a younger generation sort of disassociating from the manias of the older generation. And, and I think that's where both sides are not answering the call with a couple of octogenarians running for president. Mm -hmm. So the American brand, if you have these octogenarians running for president, stays in culture wars world, stays in the concerns of basically the media. Yeah. <laughs> Our kids are not opting in. So every day that goes by, you lose more, right? Yeah. yeah. You lose okay. opportunity. You lose engagement. People care about what they have a hand in building. And we stopped building this country. I mean, literally, a couple of years before I was born, 1959. That's the last time we added a new state. Before that, we added a new state every three to four years for about 170 years. Mm. You know, some of them we bought, some were kingdoms, some, you know, some were sovereign nations that we talked into it. And you can say, hey, hey, buddy, that's a, that's a 19th century vision of reality. And I say, wait a minute, let me take you to the European Union. They're adding members, okay? And then what are we watching the Russians do? Taking hostages along their, their vast border, which is the oldest Russian trick going back to the empire several hundred years. What are we watching the Chinese doing? They're grabbing back little chunks of their old Middle Kingdom. Just put out a map yesterday saying, hey, maybe there's several chunks of India that kind of belong to us. Just putting it out there on this map. So you're looking at great powers around the world consolidating, growing, thinking bigger. And you got America thinking smaller. How high can we build the wall? How can we disappear into whites-only supremacist enclaves in eastern Washington and Oregon? Not so. Yeah. And yeah. The, the, the boomers are the first generation that are going to leave America smaller and more divided than they found it. Whatever our problem set was throughout history, the answer was always get bigger, get better. And we've abandoned that. So, so I love America so much. I want yeah, more of it. That's great. And I believe we could sell it. I'm not talking about conquering anybody. I believe we could sell it. Okay. I it's think membership. we could talk El Salvador into 51st state. You know, mm. I think we could talk Costa Rica into things. Hell, I think we could probably talk Scotland into leader of the UK and joining us. Wow. Wow. I mean, there are all sorts of possibilities out there. I want to see these questions on the debate stage. Right. These jokers are going to talk about what's in the headlines. My first job was running news off the old school printer to, I was a production assistant, highlighting here's six AP stories that we should talk about. It was all and still all is about, please, can I resonate with the audience? So superficial. The whole business. Now, there are tons of fantastic journalists, some of whom we're going to have on this show, who are thinking deeply, have been thinking deeply. But the cycle is what you said. Advertisers want you to grab the growing market now, the engaged right. market now. That's the game. It's, it's the joke of 2024 that we're going to watch. Or, Tom, 
we have a chance to punch up, right? Kent, that's why we're here. We were, we were talking about this show for a couple hours over the last few days. And unfortunately we scratched the surface. So I think for me, I want to invite you back again, Tom, and have you be sure. a regular guest if you might, and, and even do some, some drill down, some deep dives. But what I love about what we're doing is the the whole stage for the punch up is to get from the noise into substantive conversations about things like what we're talking about here. Why wouldn't we talk about inviting Scotland to be the 51st, 53rd state, whatever else? Like, let's have some serious strategic conversations instead of this tennis match back and forth of epithets. And it's like brothers and sisters fighting. And right. it has no positive end. I'm going to have to start studying up on tartan patterns, I think. That'll be my next uh, hobby. Or, or bagpiping. And we don't, what else is- we don't want to get too wrapped around the axle on the punchline here, which is ultimately a bigger America, a bigger union, a redefinition of America that matches mm-hmm. the times and all the structural impetus going on around the world favors this. But we got to re-embrace it. Okay, I don't want to get lost in the punchline. The big thing is the journey toward it, which is recognizing mm-hmm. our soft power, altering the way we incentivize people to come closer to us, because if they don't come closer to us, they're going closer to somebody else. There is nothing about this future that we're talking about that says, hey, Honduras, you're better off going it alone, my friend, because you got the resources to tackle this all by yourself. I mean, there's nothing that says that. And so we either deal with problems in advance or they gang up on us. Again, Europe, brilliant example. Europe comes out of this Cold War and says, you know what? We're grabbing as much of Eastern Europe as we can. Why? The Russians will eventually get nasty again. I'd rather make the next fight happen in Ukraine versus in Berlin. And they were brilliantly right. Okay. We're in one of those consolidating periods. And, you know, it just forces us on a demographic basis to kind of move past where we've been stuck. You know, the average white person in America is about 58 years old. That's the median age now. The average non-white person is 28 years old. Wow. Okay. So, you know, you're really, when when you live in the echo chamber of kind of the right-wing, white-dominated Fox News or something like that, you are really living in a smaller, smaller, smaller reality. And the smaller it gets, the more freaked out you get. And the more you're open to conversations about things like civil war or January 6th is is just right. Exactly right. So if I jump in and I say, all right, two requests, Tom, actually before that, before that, I should say the obligatory, please tell people what your book title is again and where they can find it because we want to give you that spot. Right. It's America's new map, restoring our global leadership in an era of climate change and demographic collapse. And where can people find it? You can find it basically anywhere, you know, Target, Walmart, Barnes and Noble. I mean, it's on sale across the board online. Nice. And you can come to americasnewmap.com and you can find all those links. Awesome. So then my two requests, and Mark can, he can counter punch here. My two requests are one, an album or a song that represent for Tom what you just summed up. So that's one request. The second request is if the, I was about to say the proverbial bus, I mean, if a real bus hit you when you step, I hope this doesn't happen. When you step out of your house, what's the last statement you want to tell the young people? 
So those those are my two requests. Mark, do you like those? I do. Boy, I can answer with one with one song almost. Sort of my ideal uh, intro music is um, LCD sound system. The song is called, uh, I believe it's called North American Scum. And uh, what it basically says is, hey, you know, we're kind of a mongrel crew here. You know, our daddy isn't in Europe. We do what we want. This is our civilization here in the West. And it's a kind of a gritty, grungy, punky song. But I love, I just love the chorus of North American scum because, uh, you know, I want us to embrace our inner mud blood, our inner mongrelness. Nice. And then the outro music is uh, a song that David Byrne wrote for Philip Glass on his album Liquid Days. And it's, uh, it's a classic Philip Glass, you know, kind of rolling music, blah, 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 blah. you know, like not a clear melody, but very repetitious, very minimalistic. And then you have this guy singing in an operatic voice, basically the punchline over and over again with a few other lines. But the punchline is, open the kingdom. So that's what I would leave for younger people is, uh, you know, the kingdom of the United States needs to reopen. And it's, it's in that embrace of the larger reality that we're going to find how we heal ourselves. Our answer throughout our history, no matter what was going on, including slavery, was get bigger, get better. And then we've walked away from that. I'll be the first generation of seven generations of Barnett's to be born and die under the same flag. And there's no point to it. You know, old brands get taken off of uh, grocery store shelves. This is a line from my favorite author on this subject, Juan Enriquez. Old countries get removed from maps. It happens. I mean, the Soviet Union was real. Right up to the moment its public stopped thinking it was real. And when it did, that country disappeared overnight. Poof! Without a gunshot being fired. Okay? That can happen to the United States. That can happen to any country. So... Here, channeling my inner Shawshank Redemption, get busy adding stars or get busy losing stars. And right now, we're getting busy losing stars. We're looking at a country that's more divided, smaller, that wants to jettison parts of it, that wants to go its own way. And that's not who we are. That's not what we're built for. We're the United States of America. We're built for uniting states. That's our whole thing. My song... Castles made of sand fall into the sea eventually. Either get busy building on the rock or the sand will pull you down. And sounds like there's enough rains to fall, to borrow the analogy. Or rising I'm talking tide. to you kids, yeah. Eventually, it shouldn't happen. We can make strategic choices to build on the rock, proverbially, of the truth, the facts of what we're built for. I dig it. Yeah, and the facts of what we're facing. Which we're, you know, because we're led by boomers and Gen Xers right now, we're in a state of weird denial, very weird denial. And I, you know, I wrote this book mostly to just get us off that denial, to grab you by the side of your head, turn it forward and say, listen, this is what you're actually dealing with. And you can adjust to it and thrive in it if you recognize your strengths, or you can just, you know, become Japan and retire in your nursing home of the United States, because that's what we got going on otherwise. I love that as a final statement, a, I don't know, a hanging chad, an ellipsis or ellipses. Is it plural or singular? Ellipsis or ellipses? I think it's ellipses. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Did you have fun? I did. Tom, I look forward to drilling down. I have notes upon notes. I think the reason we moved up the punch up to now to launch is because you've given us content that we can sink our teeth into and talk about. We look forward to talking again very soon. Yeah, I've enjoyed this. Uh, You guys have really pushed me. This is probably the most hook-laden, to use a musical term, this is probably the most hook-laden delivery I've had so far. And I would say it's because of you guys with your punch-up metaphor and all that, and your teenager with a $20 bill in his pocket asking questions. (laughs) Hey, I was born with my cap turned back. Listen, I only do professional things because I got to pay the bills. I'm just a kid in the neighborhood. And we all are, by the way. And that's the global middle class. Yeah. And it's an exciting and a good place to be. When You know, when the middle is happy, everybody's happy. And when the middle class is unhappy, nobody's happy. And that's the reality of our system. We're built for that. That is sort of our canary in the coal mine. So when your middle class starts to feel like it's losing it, that's bad. And that has to be dealt with. Right. You are welcome back anytime. Uh, you're not bad in our book, and we'd love to deal with you. So right. uh, come on back. We'll have a, a good conversation. Him. Yeah, this has been a fun, fun conversation. Take care. Thank you. What a great conversation, right? If you're feeling like you just pulled in a deep breath from some outer space view of our world, that's probably the right feeling. And what a great way to pivot to the rest of the show. What do you think? I guess I'm. I guess we're in space. We're listening to LCD sound system yes. as we're like taking. We're crash landing to Earth now after this crazy interview. I did not expect Thomas to be so entertaining and at the same time terrifying. Yeah, there's an apocalyptic feel that candidly. It's why we started the punch-up, right? There are conversations that need to happen inside the world of policy where the wonks talk about the running dogs of capitalism. And then there's people out there all over the world that are either going to opt into, according to Tom, American-style capitalism, something from Europe, and something from China. Those are your three big sort of options on the menu. And boy, what a great way to pivot into this uh this rest of our show, maybe a season dedicated to this concept is uh, is worth our attention. I'm excited. How about you? I'm super excited. Yeah, I, I think um, also I love that, you know, in this case, we had a chance to go one-on-one with Thomas. We've invited him back, so hopefully he'll come in on our, on our panel shows. And then I'm excited that we're just going to go into free-for-all situations where we pull some people together and see what kind of chemistry happens. So that's what to expect from us. Uh, We're going to do our best to come out with some regularity and um, tune in. Yeah, if you have ideas, put them in the comments. If you have guests or ideas, there's no good idea that we want to leave floating out in space. We want to bring it in. And if it needs to be heard, hey, that's what the punch-up means. Let's get the best ideas into the conversations where they can make a difference and some of the bad ideas and no thinking at all kicked out. So that's what we're here for. Look forward to your comments. All right. Subscribe. Listen to us again. Reach out anytime. Can't wait to uh, talk to you, to listen to you the next time. Ciao.